I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at uh, verses 8 through 11 this morning. Um, this is the church of Smyrna. It's the second of the seven churches that we will be uh, going through between now and the end of August. This one, like I said earlier, this is, this is uh, for me, this was like a, this could be heavy. Uh, I'm hoping that it's not like gruesomely heavy. I'm hoping it's not uh, uh, just, just what this church is going to go through. I don't know that anyone in this room ever will experience this. But uh, as I said earlier, I think it's important that we can identify with our brothers and sisters, but also not knowing the future. We don't know where we're going to be 20 years from now. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen in the United States or around the world or anything like that. And so we do want to look at this and see what we can kind of glean from it, learn from it so that we can be better prepared uh, in our faithful walk with the Father um, in whatever circumstances we might find ourselves. And so let's read in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And to the angel in the church of Smyrna write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. But be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Father, as we look at your text this morning, I pray for your spirit to speak to us clearly as to what we are to walk away from here knowing this morning. Out of all the information, out of all the things that I might say, Father, help us to hear from you and you alone that we will leave this place different than when we came in, knowing that you are doing a work in us through the Holy Spirit in our lives. We thank you, Father, that we do not have to trust in man and what man thinks. And that's why, Father, I just ask and beg for you to speak to us in our spirits from your word what you would have us to learn today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want us to, uh, like I said last week, the church in Ephesus is really the only church, the first sermon I did, church in Ephesus is really the only church that we know anything about. The rest of the churches, we know a little bit about, we've heard a little bit about Laodicea. Later on, we'll get to that. But the rest of these churches, we don't hear anything about. We don't know that much about. And so some of the things that are written within the text actually apply historically to those places. And I'm hoping that when, as, as, I, as I studied back through some of the history this, this week and over the past couple of weeks, really, uh, I'm hoping some of this will bring to light what this text 
is actually saying for us. And so uh, Smyrna is actually this, it's, it's a little ways north of Ephesus there. It's actually, there's a mail route. When the mail used to come into Ephesus, it would actually go through like Smyrna and Pergamum and start steering south towards Laodicea and, and of course to other places around there. And so this is a common route that as John was writing this letter and was sending it out to the messengers, it was just the mail route that they would go through. Smyrna was a fairly prominent city until about the 7th century BC when this, uh, uh, this Lydian dynasty came in and just, they didn't just take them over, they wiped them out. They just destroyed the city. And it was for three or four hundred years, this city just laid in waste until Alexander the Great kind of came and took over and, and the, the Greeks came in and started reestablishing places. And Smyrna was kind of brought back to life a little bit, but it wasn't until the Romans came around a couple of hundred years later when the, the, the Romans came in and they really built up Smyrna to be one of the finest cities, most beautiful cities, uh, a port city where they reestablished this big port that they had for uh, j just for business and, and all this. They, they uh, picked up on uh, silver. They, had they were the home of silversmiths and goldsmiths and tanners. Uh, they, they, were ex they excelled in medicine and science throughout the Roman Empire, not just in that region, but throughout the entire Roman Empire. Smyrna was prominently known in the areas of medicine. In particular, uh, Smyrna actually means, it's, it's a play on the word myrrh, and it was grown and shipped and all over the place around there. And so, you know, you, 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 we, we've read all about myrrh in several places throughout the uh, scriptures, but it is, most of it would come from Smyrna and all of this stuff, all of this stuff was tied to the worship of other gods. In particular, Smyrna, one of the things they did was they, in order to appease or appeal to Rome to come in and help them rebuild, to strengthen, to reestablish, is, is they basically created the goddess of Roma. And they had a temple and a statue and all this kind of stuff, and it impressed Rome so much that that's why they came in and started investing all of these resources into Rome. And over time, even throughout the uh, uh, early years, even when Jesus was walking around over in the Middle East, over here in Smyrna, uh, they, they won a contest with like 10 other cities throughout Asia there to be able to build a temple and a statue to the emperor at that time of Tiberius. And over the years, they, as each, like I said uh, in the first message, each emperor that came along, they would, almost at the time of their death, they would establish this uh, deity. They would deify these emperors. And Domitian, who is the emperor at this time, he did not wait until he was almost dead. He started deifying himself now. And so Smyrna had all, it was like there were temple after temple and statue after statue. And they were required to go to the statue of the Caesar at that time. And they were required to burn incense. And they were required to declare Caesar is Lord in Smyrna. And so you can start seeing that how the church might start having problems with something like this. And this is what John, as he's writing to the church in Smyrna at this time, he's warning them and encouraging them both at the same time. Uh, we, 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 pr we probably believe that the church was actually established when 
just like many of the other churches, around the time that Paul was in Ephesus in the mid-50s A.D., when he was in the hall of Tyrannus there in Ephesus, and all, it says that all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Uh, it was probably at that time that the church was started. And so you start off here in the first particular verse here, and, and it says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. Uh, John, interestingly, at, at, at the beginning of each one of these uh, letters to the church, or these sections to each of the churches, he starts off writing something that he had actually said in his description of Jesus back in chapter 1. Uh, this part right here, it says, who was dead, or the first and the last, who was dead and has come back to life. As you look over in chapter 1, verse 17, it says that he placed his... Uh, uh, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Uh, last week at the church of Ephesus, when he said, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, in chapter 1 there in verse 2, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, those are up in verse 12 where he says, and having turned, I saw, chapter 1, verse 12, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw the one like the son of man and down in verse 16 it says and in his right hand he held the seven stars and as you go through each of these sections you will notice that there is a reference when he says to the church of Smyrna the one who's this person it says this what he says about that person is referenced back in chapter one so his description of Jesus he's he's just doubling down on it when he says this person is now speaking to you I am the first and the last I was dead and have come to life. This was also, no doubt, a play on the fact that Smyrna used to pride themselves in the fact that when they were destroyed, they came back to life. That was part of their history back then. They would go out and declare it to people, hey, they, they could knock us out, they could knock us down, but they couldn't keep us down. That was part of their, you know, PR program of, 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 of getting people to come to the area, whether it's businesses or tourism or whatever it might be. That was part of their, so they used to go out and just tell everybody, man, they could knock us down, but, and maybe for 400 years we were out of it, but look at us, man, we're not only back to life, we are thriving Man, we are like at the tops of all these, whether it's business or medicine or education or whatever it might be, we are at the top of the game here. And so he writes to them and he goes on, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the, and blasph <clears throat> excuse me, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. We just saw where there were people who would go down and they would burn the incense and they would cry out that Caesar is Lord and they would do this. And, 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 and this was a law, but the way they kind of made sure everybody across the land did this was every year they were given a certificate. They were given some kind of a paper that said, you have completed this task. Now, it wasn't like one day everybody showed up. It was just throughout the years. Kind of like, you know, when you go to the DMV and you, get, you, know, you pay your, your registration, you get a new sticker to put on your car. That's kind of what this is like, is that you would have to go and do your incense. There would be someone there to certify it. They'd give you a slip of paper. Now, it's not like you had to carry this thing around and prove to people, but you could be accused of this. And there were people who would, the Jews especially, they would accuse 
The Christians especially. Now, there was a time when the Christians used to meet in the synagogues, but then right around the time that Jerusalem, the temple was destroyed around A.D. 70, slowly but surely the church started separating themselves from all the synagogues that were around the area because of the persecution from within the synagogue. They just started meeting separately. And here, what we see is these Jews would bring these accusations up against these Christians that they are not, they are not doing this. They are not worshiping. They are not saying that Caesar is Lord. As a matter of fact, that, all that ever did was give you the opportunity to kind of walk up and, and do the little sprinkle or anything. They didn't necessarily throw you in jail or anything like that because you didn't do it. But what would happen is, socially, you would be an outcast vocationally, you lose your job or lose, or, or, or lose a whole lot of uh, business in the area. They would, they would start here. Rumors would start going around about this Christian over here who owns this business. He's not, work, he's not doing his incense thing over here. They would switch their business to someone who was saying Caesar is Lord. And so there was, that's one of the reasons why here it says that, and, and though you are in poverty, though you are, but it says, but you are rich. And, and, and it's, it, listen, this is not a side note. This is profound in that we need to recognize that we are rich because of Christ. The Jewish synagogue was one of the only places that supposedly, and, and again, I don't know if this is 100% true. I found mostly documents would say this, but there was one or two places who didn't. But the Jewish synagogue seemed to be a place that was exempt from doing the Jesus or, or uh, Caesar is Lord and the, pinch because, uh, the incense, burning of the incense because they brought so much influence and business and stuff to the area. But the Jews, what they would do to cause problems for the Christians is not so much point out that they're not saying Caesar is Lord. They would actually do the opposite and say they are saying that he is nobody at all. They're saying Jesus is Lord and nobody else is. As a matter of fact, Caesar, him alone, he is, he is, he is nothing. He is just another guy. Yeah, he might be up here politically, but he is just another guy. And that is what the Jewish people would bring to the Roman authorities and get the Christians arrested. And that could get you not only put in prison, but even executed. And those are kind of some of the things that are going on here. If they don't play their game, if they don't do the things the way they wanted them to do, not just, not just the way the Roman Empire wanted them to do it, but even among the Jews, how they wanted you to play the game, then they would cause problems for you. And listen, the United States is not exempt from this at all. I mean, all around the country, things go. I remember when I was in youth camp and we were traveling around the Northwest. We went into Montana and I saw this kid on the basketball court. I was one of the, uh, the camp leaders and I saw this kid on the basketball court. And he was like 6'4". He had shoulders out to here, had a little waistline. I mean, he was like, he was an amazing looking athlete. He was sculpted. He was and, in, and, and when I watched him on the basketball court, he was, he, he was whipping everybody. He was awesome. And so throughout the week, I got to know this young man and found out he was from Indiana. His father became, was a, a professor, actually moved up to uh, Montana 
to be in one of the schools up there, and I'm not sure, I forget which one it was, but he was in one of the schools up there, and this young man as a freshman in high school started playing basketball in their school, and he was so good, he was put up to, before the season actually started, to, on the varsity team as a freshman, and up, up in that area, it had never been done. He, was, he didn't start playing early in the year, but once he got into the game, he took over games. This kid was awesome. His father was showing me newspaper clippings and articles and stuff like that. This kid was amazing. Went into his sophomore year, starting his sophomore year, and he was, he was like all region. He was possibly all state, and all these kind of wonderful things were going on in his life. But about halfway through the season, this kid all of a sudden was benched. Father started asking questions of the coach. Coach said, well, he's taking a little bit too much on his shoulders. He's not playing as a team. He started coming up with all these excuses and things like that. And found out that uh, over time that the coach went to this father and said, listen, if you don't start doing what your bosses want you to do, which is go to the Mormon church, go to the Mormon state, go to the Mormon temple, or not temple, tabernacle, or, you know, all of, the, all of these. If you do not come to Mormon worship services, then they have informed me that your kid does not play basketball. And so here he is between his sophomore and his junior year, and this kid was telling us that after camp, he was going to move back to Indiana to live with his grandmother, and his father and his mother were going to stay up there in Montana until they could find another place to go. And and, and all this. And because this kid, whose father was a, a strong Christian, a deacon in a church and all that, and they said, no, you need to come over here to the Mormon church. You need to be a part of us. You need to be in here with us. And when I was out in Utah and Montana and Idaho, I would hear stories like that all the time. If you don't play ball with us, we will, we will cause problems for you. We will take away some of the things from you that you like and you appreciate and you. Things like that would happen a lot out there. But here he says, I know of your tribulation and your poverty. I know you are struggling. I know hard times are on you. I know you are having a very difficult time, but you are rich. This is actually the exact opposite of what he says to the church in Laodicea. In chapter 3, verse 17 he says to the church in Laodicea, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. We'll see when we get to the church in Laodicea how they thought so highly of themselves that they didn't think they needed all this. Uh, they didn't think they needed God as much. They didn't think they needed to do things the way they had done in the past. And so here though he's saying you are rich on, on, the, on, on, the, on an eternal perspective you are rich and friends we need to look at ourselves that way we don't need to we don't need to focus on the current circumstances that we find ourselves in the difficulties that we find ourselves we don't need to look at right now in this problem that we might be having and thinking oh woe is me this is terrible and all that we need to be looking on a eternal perspective and realize yes in the midst of this problem but the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us this suffering we're going to can't even compare to what's about to come 
I've shared with you a few times about this young man that I met when I was in North Africa and, 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 and I noticed as he reached out and shook my hands and his shirt sleeve came up and he had some scabs on his arms that as, as he told me his story, he came to faith and every night, his parents knew about it, and every night at the dinner table, his father would take a fork and put it over a flame and he would tell his son, this little 19, 20-year-old young man, he would say, are you ready to come back to Islam and leave this Jesus behind and his son would say no and he would take that fork and brand his arm and the young man unbuttoned his shirt he pulled up and he had a scab all up from his elbow to his wrist on t- one on top of the other on top of the other and me being the American wanting to fix something immediately I, my brain was racing my I was crying I was in tears and trying to figure out how can I help this young man and 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 he looks at me and he says my Jesus suffered so much for me why can't I suffer a little for him this is a young man who just came to faith not long ago, knew more, experienced more, was walking more in Christ than I was, a seminary graduate, a pastor, a missionary, was at that time. That young man taught me what it meant to be walking in the midst of suffering in a way that honors God. And I have to ask myself many times in the situation, what would I do? What would, what would I do? Honestly, I would hope that my, where my heart is, I would hope that I would be able to will my way. That I, I would hope that my vision towards my, my goal out there, knowing that Christ is my future, that heaven is my home, knowing that that is the case, I would hope that I would be able to look in the face of persecution and say, give me your best shot. But I don't know what that's, we don't know what that's going to be like. All we can do is in this moment now is continually pursuing Christ and becoming more Christ-like in everything so that as we are put, presented with these problems, it's not David Hutton who is making this reply or, or commenting or, or deciding on how to respond to this situation. It is Christ in me doing that because David Hutton in and of himself will run from Christ in a heartbeat to avoid, but Christ in me as I allow Christ to control more of me, as I am becoming more like Christ, he will not allow me to do that. And that is our goal. Even now, whatever it is that we think we're going through, the difficulties, we need to pursue Christ in that and not self-help books or the advice of a neighbor who is not pointing us to Christ or even family members who are trying to help us through a difficult time. and Yeah, I want to listen to what they have to say, but I don't have to follow their advice because more than likely, Christ is going to have something different for me. And many times, it is what he is sharing to the church here. He is, he, he is telling them, do not fear. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. When he says do not fear, basically what he's saying there, literally what that means is to stop being afraid. Just stop being afraid. There's a, there's a famous uh, Bob Newhart uh, old show when he was a counselor. There's a lady comes into his room. She's sharing with him stories. And he says, okay, listen, I, can t- I think I can help you. I can t- here, here's, my, here's my advice for you. Do you want to get a piece of paper out and write it? It's just two words. I just want you to, want you to get this. And, and so she takes a piece of paper out and she's anxious about writing it down. And he just says, stop it. Stop it. But you don't understand. No, I understand you just got to stop it. 
And it just goes back and forth. It's, more, it's a comedy, but the idea here is he's just using this. He's just hollering out, stop it. And as, as she continues to bring up these, uh, but you don't understand. He just, stop it. Here, Jesus is, Jesus is telling the church there, stop being afraid. John writes in his uh, letter, John, in John 16, 33, in the world you have suffering, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Jesus says, I have overcome, I have conquered, I am victorious. As a matter of fact, this is the same word that we saw last week and we will see throughout the rest of these things. It says, he who overcomes, he who conquers, he who is victorious. And it gives, and we'll see it here in a little bit, what he says to Smyrna. But he says, it's the same word as he's using there, but he's telling them. He's telling them, I am a conqueror. I am overcoming this. I have, this has been defeated. So what are you afraid of? Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Listen, they're in the midst of problems already. And he's warning them, do not be afraid. Stop being afraid of what's coming. Think about that. The struggles they're going through right now, and this letter is saying, hey, listen, you guys, y'all don't need to be afraid of what's coming, as if right now is not bad enough for them. And he says, the devil is going to, is about to cast some of you into prison. And, I, and, and, and this, is, this is an important, important thing I want us, this is an area that we can all, I believe, grow in because as I saw this years ago, I realized that, yeah, this is, this is something, an area I can grow in. The devil is about to cause some of you to be thrown into prison. It's actually, if you, if, if you just go back in history, it's the Romans who are doing it and the Jews who are doing it. But don't think that the devil isn't behind it, causing all this stuff to happen. And what that did for me is when I started seeing this in the light of all, the, my, even my day-to-day -day stuff, is that who am I to cast dispersions or or verbalize any kind of bitterness or hatred toward anyone that might be doing something against me when more than likely and highly likely it is the enemy that's causing all this stuff to happen in their heart to do this against me. Which is a good reason why I believe Jesus was on that cross and one of his first words were, Father, forgive them for they have no idea what they are doing. They don't know what they are doing. It is the enemy behind the Jews, behind the Romans, behind all the things that are going on. It is the devil who is persecuting Christ's church. And here he's just saying, he's going to cast some of you into prison and you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Now, I don't believe this is literally 10 days. Because we know that this tribulation historically went on for years. Now, was he talking specifically about a 10-day period that they were going to be arrested and thrown in the jail and then that was going to stop, but the consequences of the prison was going to go on? I don't know. Did he mean that 10 years symbolically could be, you know, like um, if you, if, uh, until Constantine shows up 240 plus years later or whatever when the Constantine was an emperor of Rome and he, he made Christianity legal? And they were able to experience freedom like they'd never experienced before. Did it have something to do with that? I don't know. All I know is, here he says, for a time, for a period of time, whatever that might be. And, and, and in light of eternity, for a short period of time, you will have tribulation. But be 
faithful unto death. He didn't say be faithful until it gets too hot and too hard and too difficult for you to handle. And then you can kind of, I'll let it slide if you want to go ahead and burn some incense and cry out Caesar is Lord. If you want to do that, then that's fine. I'll let you slide on it because I know, you know, it's not fair to ask you to die. No, right here he says, be faithful unto death. The, the, the bar is raised high here for the church, not just in Smyrna, but for the church as a whole. The bar is raised high that we have one Lord and one King and one Master. He is from eternity past to eternity in the future. And we don't bow down to anyone or no one else. And that is Jesus. That is Jesus. We do not bow a knee to anyone else. We don't even play games and think, well, I'll just let this slide. No. That should, be a, that should show us. Listen, one of, the, one of the hardest things for me to do when I was overseas and, and, and discipling a young believer in an Islamic country was to tell them, no, you can't hide your faith. You can't lie about your faith. You cannot deny your faith in order to avoid suffering. We didn't tell them they had to go out and stand on a soapbox and just start preaching it out loud in, a, in the marketplace somewhere. We didn't tell them to go do that, but we told them, you cannot hide it. You cannot deny it. That was hard because some of these guys, some of these guys, would, they would lose jobs. They would be beaten. They would have to leave town and go live in villages outside of town. I knew several guys who had to do that, and it was always hard to see them go knowing that they were being faithful but yet they were going somewhere else. And, I look, and over time, I started hearing about a little group of people that was meeting in a village somewhere. And it was not, not, not anyone I knew, but someone else would know about a, a young man who went out to a village and stayed with a cousin. And before long, this cousin came to faith. And then this, a couple other people came to faith. And, 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 and so in, in the same way as the early church, you started seeing this persecution this, that, that was scattering the believers all throughout the area up into modern-day Turkey and all of the, the persecution that was scattering them all over the Middle East was a church-planting movement. The persecution led to seeing God's church expanded, His kingdom expanded further and further. And that our temporary time here, whether it is a good long life of 70, 80 years or a short time of 20, 30 years and I get killed because of my faith or I die of a disease or whatever it is, my little short time here, none of that compares to what is waiting for us out on the horizon of eternity. Again, for the suffering of this time cannot compare to what is waiting on us. As a matter of fact, we do know that it went longer than 10, uh, 10 days because uh, there was a pastor in that time, a pastor in Smyrna. You, you probably heard of him. His name was Polycarp. He was a guy that was arrested and was forced to try to burn incense. And he said, no, the Caesar's Lord, he said, no. Uh, they brought him into a stadium and where they had, you know, had uh, these games where they would kill Christians and all that kind of stuff. And this was a Saturday. And they brought him into this stadium and they were going to burn him alive if he didn't do anything. And he just basically, he said, no, I'm not going to do it. They said, listen, it's just words. It's just say it, and it's going to be fine. And he, this is what he said back to them. Eighty and six years I have served my Lord, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? 
And when they talked about the fire and how bad that was going to feel, he said, listen, this fire is going to burn for a short time. But man, the fire that you might experience for eternity, that's, that's what I fear more. And they burned him alive. They killed him in that. There's a lot of stories about it. But basically, he died that day. What was interesting is, and history writes this, is that on a Sabbath day, the Jews were the one that was hauling in the fire to burn this guy. They were breaking their own Sabbath oaths of bringing in the fire or bringing in the wood to light on fire to burn this guy to death. And so they were not being real picky at that time in the madness of the moment. They were not even thinking about it. They were breaking their own Sabbath laws in order to see this Christian polycarp killed. The devil will use whatever he can. And we need to understand that when we are being persecuted, look, listen, listen to what it says. In, in, when Jesus is on the Sermon he's on the, on the Mount of Olives, his Sermon on the Mount there, he says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Because of me, you will go through these difficulties. Later on, he says, if the world, in chapter 15, John chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world and the world loved its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If we go through difficulties, if we go through persecution, struggles, whatever it is, if we go through those things because of our faith, it is not that they're attacking us. Just as the enemy uses the whatever government or other peoples to bring on the attack onto the Christian, it is because of the Christian's walk with the Father. And so this is a battle between God and Satan, right? It is a battle between God and Satan, and God has already won that war. Jesus has already conquered sin and death. He has already won that battle. And when we say, when we, when we pledge our allegiance to him, when we pledge our allegiance to Jesus, when we say that because of your death and your conquering of death and sin, and when he was raised from the dead, and we're going to do as you want us to do, we're going to walk in a way that is worthy of, your, of that great sacrifice, we're going to be Christ-like then we can expect difficulties to come our way because of his name's sake. But in the latter part of that verse, he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And actually what that means, it's not I'm going to give you a crown of life. It is I'm going to give you a crown which is life, eternal life. Our reward is eternal life. If we ever do get a crown or something like that, I promise you we're all going to be compelled to lay that crown right back at his feet. But this, what this is saying is that this crown that we are, it is 
eternal life that we have. For those who are faithful. He says, be faithful. And then in verse 10, he who has an ear, just like he does in all these, all these parts that he sends to these churches, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What is the Spirit saying to us? Remember, we, we've talked about this before. We can read the Bible and we can, you know, learn the knowledge of the words and, 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 and the meanings and all that kind of stuff. But when John wrote this, he was, he was challenged to write what you see. And here we're told, listen for the Spirit. Now, all of these things are in line of what is written here. We just cannot be considering things that are contrary to what Scripture says. That is not the way. The Spirit cannot separate teaching from what the Scripture says. So when the Spirit is revealing something to us, if we can test that and see that it is true in the Scripture, what is the Spirit saying to us in this moment? What is the Spirit saying? Not only to the church in Smyrna, because remember, even though it says in verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, even though in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, and to the angel of the church in Ephesus, and as we see later on, he's going to be writing specific churches, but here he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Other churches might not be experiencing what Smyrna is going through, but I promise you he's got a word for those churches when it comes to the idea of preparing ourselves for difficult times. For what might happen. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The second death is, we're all going to die the first death. There's, you know, we're, we're all going to die. The second death is as we're standing before the Father and he says, you can, well done, good and faithful servant, come into your heavenly home and we are in heaven forever and ever. That's the crown of life. That is eternal life that we have. We will not experience a second death. The second death is for those who have not embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The, one, the ones who have not decided that he is worthy of our life while we're living and breathing on this planet. It is for those who have rejected and disregarded all that God has for them. And they will go off to eternal punishment. And that is the second death. And here he says, for those who overcome, he who overcomes or he who conquers or he who is victorious will not be hurt by that second death. Heavy message a little bit. It's kind of hard to kind of find a, you know, a, a, a taking all that is said here, but but, but here's, what, here, here, here's the important thing. This is something that as I look through in these seven churches, I find that in all six of these seven churches, they don't exist today. You can go back to that part of the world and they don't exist today. The church in Smyrna, there is a church in Smyrna today. It's Izmir. It's actually in that part of Turkey. The, title, the name of the city is Izmir today. And there is a Christian church there. So there's no doubt that and so over the years, over the centuries, over time, they overcame. God did not remove that lampstand from Smyrna. They are there today. And so that is something that we can, as, as, as a way to be excited and, 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 and celebrate 
with the church there is that we can walk in a way that is worthy of what he has called us to do. Wherever we are, whatever struggles we're going through, whatever, I'm not trying to minimize. Listen, in America, we don't go through persecution like they do in most parts of the world. I don't know of many preachers that are going to be arrested just for standing up here and proclaiming God's word in America. I don't know many churches that are just going to be barred up because they didn't register for, with the local government. I don't know of many people who say blessing around a meal or something like that and a, and, a, and a mad group of people come storming into the home and kill everybody in the home because you're in there practicing your faith. But I imagine some of you are struggling in one way or another. And by in no means am I limiting what the Father is trying to say to the church in Smyrna and not trying to relate that to you. I am wanting to relate that to you by saying this. In whatever circumstances you find yourself, he says to be faithful and to conquer and to overcome whatever struggles, whatever difficulties we might be experiencing. Financial, relational, vocational, doesn't matter all the very health-wise, doesn't matter whatever struggles we might be going through. Let's continue to be faithful, walking in a way that is worthy of his great love and sacrifice to and for us. Let's pray. Father, I... I thank you for your faithfulness to us. Even when we have disobeyed you and dishonored you and you continue to pursue us. Father, I pray that we would turn our attention towards you. And Father, at times as opportunity presents itself, be able to turn the attention of others towards your greatness as well. Thank you for loving us, Father. For doing all that you did for us to make a way for us in the death of Jesus Christ to not just know of your love, but to be able to experience your love and know for certain that because of what you did and how we respond to that in our day-to-day -day walk, we can be certain that we will not experience that second death. Thank you for loving us and calling us to yourself, Father. We are truly grateful for all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.